Oh, and happy to have us all bright and cheery this morning. The only people who didn't get any, speak, any, any sleep last night were our speakers. And so let's hope that, uh, that they're in great shape this morning. One of the things we hope to, to emphasize at this meeting were the challenges to Christian faith in the various professions. And one profession that has been advancing dramatically in the last few decades with real challenges to faith and ethics has been the profession of medicine. We're really happy to have a, a person who's been uh, central to these discussions uh, to talk with us this morning, and it's Dr. Douglas Dekema. Now, I've somehow lost Doug. Where are you? coming down. Great. Uh, give you a little bit of background on, on uh, Dr. Dekema. He's currently uh, residing in Seattle. He has an adjunct professorship at the University of Washington, and he is the uh, director of the Troyman Katz uh, Bioethics um, Institute. He's, uh, I'll give you a variety of, I guess I'm old enough that I need these things, don't I? He's, uh, He's also chair of the Bioethics Committee, American Academy of Pediatrics, member of the Ethics Committee also, the American Board of Pediatrics. Uh, his uh, training, interestingly enough, uh, undergraduate degree at Calvin College and at one time a member of the Calvin Center for Christian Scholarship, a fellow there. I don't know why I mentioned that. I think I have a soft spot in my heart for that college yet. Uh, his medical degree is from the uh, University of North Carolina. And uh, so he has a, a broad interest and training then in bioethics and medical bioethics. Uh, a number of you will have read in the newspapers over the last probably a year, year and a half ago, something like that, uh, of an issue that involved uh, medical ethics in the Seattle area. Uh, received international uh, uh, reporting, actually. And Dr. Deacon was the ethicist advising that uh, set of procedures. And I'm sure he'll have something to say uh, to us this morning about that and about some other challenges that he sees in this field. And so I'm really, really happy to be able to welcome him here. And if you'll welcome him with me, I'd appreciate it. morning. Can you all hear that? Is that sound going to be okay? No? Higher yet? How about that? Is that better? Well, first I want to apologize to those I woke up at 1230 this morning. And um, it's good to see you with clothes on. I am... I'm going to talk about a case I was involved in. This may not work, actually. So we'll try this. Um, but first, I want to tell you about my grandmother's worst nightmare. Seems to want to keep restarting. Yeah, it does. See that pop up? Please just hit this restart later. Okay. 
It seems every five or ten minutes to do that. Um, I do work in the emergency room at Children's Hospital. That's my clinical <clears throat> realm when I'm not doing bioethics. And so I appreciate that cartoon for that, for this reason. But it also was actually my Northwest Iowa grandmother's worst nightmare. She would require that we change into a new pair of underwear when we uh, went to visit the big city of Orange City, Iowa. Um, and her reasoning was if we got in an accident, she wanted us to be presentable. Um, <laughs> It was one of my first ethical uh, uh, arguments with with, with um, someone else because Grandma was appealing to the virtue that cleanliness is next to godliness, and we would counter with the virtue of stewardship and make the claim that if we were going to get in an accident and lose a pair of underwear, it ought to be a ratty, dirty pair and not <laughs> a nice one. She didn't really buy it. Um, Ethics affects all of us, um, no matter what discipline we're in, and um, we all do ethics in, in, in some way. And I particularly like Stanley Hauerwas's definition of what you do when you actually work in the field of bioethics. He describes it as bad poetry that seeks to help us see what we see every day but fail to see rightly. Uh, and then he goes on to say that if ethicists had talent, they might be poets, but in the absence of talent, they try to make their clanking, conceptual, and discursive claims do the work of art. Um, and, and I think uh, the, the, the truth in um, Hauerwas's comment here is, is that what ethics does <clears throat> when it really does its job best is to try to get people to see issues a little differently, uh, to maybe perhaps broaden their vision as they look at an issue. Um, and the case I'm going to tell you about is an illustration of that. <clears throat> but a little more about vision first. This is um, actually my favorite mountain in the Northwest. Um, most people can't even identify this mountain. Does anybody know what this is, other than Bud Bama, who heard this talk? It's not Shuxon. Good guess, though. Anybody else? It's not Stewart. This is Mount Olympus in the Olympic uh, mountain range on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. Um, a lot of people aren't sure why this would be my favorite mountain. Um, we've got Mount Rainier. Some of you visited Mount St. Helens yesterday. Mount Hood is on the horizon here. They're all spectacularly beautiful mountains. Um, and Mount Olympus is fairly uh, unimpressive the way most people see it, which is usually from Hurricane Ridge, which is where you can drive your car. It's a 7,900-foot mountain, which tends to get lost among the 7,000-plus-foot ridges that surround it. And, and to, to tourists, you usually have to point it out. It's not obvious that this is Mount Olympus. You have to sort of say, well, it's that little bump sort of in the middle of all the other bumps. But to really appreciate Mount Olympus, you have to, you have to do some hard work to get to know Mount Olympus. And what that means uh, is doing a 17-mile trip up the Ho River Valley, um, climbing 3,000 feet of elevation, and that'll get you to base camp. Uh, and then you have to do another several thousand feet of elevation gain over another five miles with crampons and an ice axe and rope to teammates to get to the top. And when you do that, this is the view you, 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 you find. Um, it's an absolutely stunning and spectacular landscape. I've been to the top of Rainier. I've been to the top of St. Helens. I've been to the top of Hood. Um, nothing in my experience parallels uh, the experience I had getting to know Mount Olympus, and uh, that's why it's my favorite mountain. Uh, to understand this mountain, though, you really have to get to know it, and uh, that is also the case with ethical issues. When we look at ethical issues, when we look at cases in particular, particularly those that appear in the media, 
you really, if you really want to understand those cases, you have to get to know them. And that means really taking the time and doing the hard work of understanding exactly what's going on here and then trying to make sense out of that. And that's what I'm going to spend a little time doing this morning, uh, talking about this little girl whose name is Ashley. Um, I'm not violating confidentiality here because everything I tell you is now in the public domain, thanks in large part to the fact that Ashley's parents have a website uh, that documents her particular odyssey. Many of you know the story of Ashley. Uh, Ashley, uh, my first encounter with Ashley was, was now several years ago. Uh, she, was, uh, she first presented to our institution as a six-and-a-half-year-old and, and at that point in time had been diagnosed with profound neurologic and cognitive disability. Now, translated what that means is Ashley was incapable of, of, of doing uh, virtually anything other than sort of sitting with assistance, um, fussing, smiling. She could not eat on her own. She can't use her arms meaningfully. She can't roll over in bed, so she needs assistance with that. She can't sit without being strapped into a chair. She has no means of communicating effectively other than the fact that you can tell she's agitated or you can tell she's happy. Um, she presented largely because she, at six and a half, had a one-year history of pubic hair and six-month history of early breast budding, which um, uh, to most of you will be familiar signs of uh, the early onset of puberty. Um, not an, a particularly uncommon problem with children with severe uh, cognitive disability. Um, Ashley also comes from a, a family uh, where people tend to be tall. Both her mother and her father are tall. She herself uh, was in the 70th, 75th percentile for her height and about 50th percentile for weight. And um, that led her parents to have some concerns about her growth. Um, and so they came uh, to the hospital with a uh, request and and that was is there a way to limit our child's growth? She's about to go into puberty. She's about to experience a growth spurt. She's going to be a big girl. We currently can pick her up and lift her and put her in chairs and put her in the car and take her on vacation and so on and so on. We're concerned that if she becomes as big as it appears she's destined to be, uh, that we'll be unable to do much of that. Uh, and uh, and we prefer. Um, uh, to maintain as personal a level of care as we can, as opposed to using lifts and, and uh, bringing people into the home to help and keeping her at home uh, when we go to the park instead of taking her along. So they initially approached their general pediatrician with this request, <clears throat> and their general pediatrician referred them to their, uh, the endocrinologist at our hospital. Um, and they actually came with three requests, not only the the request that her growth be attenuated, but also that uh, at the same time a hysterectomy be performed and uh, that her breast buds be removed. They had reasons for all of those requests that were related specifically to their family history and to Ashley. The request for a hysterectomy is actually a very common one uh, for children similar to Ashley. Uh, if you look at parents of severely developmentally delayed children, about 50% of them have considered a hysterectomy for their girls, uh, in part to protect them against the possibility of unwanted pregnancy and in part to protect them against the, um, uh, the potential for menstrual cramps and, and the monthly onset of bleeding that they may not understand or appreciate. 
Um, so it's a very common concern that parents of these kids have. And Ashley's parents, in that case, were not making any kind of an unusual request with regard to a hysterectomy. That being said, hysterectomies can be very difficult to obtain for people who cannot consent for themselves. Uh, the breast bud removal was a very uh, relatively novel request uh, for someone uh, on behalf of a daughter. Um, it's not an uncommon request on behalf of sons who have breast development, usually because of either some endocrinologic disorder or obesity. And so it's actually a common procedure, a relatively common procedure performed by our surgeons. What was novel in this case was that it was actually parents who were making that request for a daughter. Their argument was that Ashley's, uh, Ashley um, came from a lineage of women who had large and, in many cases, uh, uncomfortable breasts. Uh, her mother did not want her to suffer uh, the discomfort of having large breasts. Uh, she knew that when she strapped in a chair, the straps came across her chest. Um, and her argument was she's never going to be in a position where these will be of benefit to her in the sense that she will appreciate them uh, from an identity perspective, i.e. identify sort of as a woman, uh, uh, or she would never be in a position to nurse a baby, she would never be in a position to be a romantic partner. And uh, so their feeling was without those advantages, uh, there was only the potential for disadvantage here. Um, Timing was an important issue here. It's, uh, a breast bud removal is a much simpler procedure than a full mastectomy, and, and so the timing of the request was intentional. They recognized that once she had gone through puberty, this would, this would uh, become a much uh, higher risk procedure, a, much, uh, a procedure accompanied with more uh, discomfort uh, than, than a simple breast bud removal, which, which literally requires a very tiny incision and, and um, um, the removal of a, a tiny bud of tissue without in, uh, a lot of dissection and so on. Um, so those were the reasons for their requests. Uh, they had thought these things out um, quite thoroughly. The endocrinologist and the pediatrician recognized that there were ethical ramifications to all three of these requests. They made a request for an ethics consult. I was the person on when that call came in. And I made a number of decisions immediately. The first was that this was not the sort of decision an individual consultant should make. And uh, so I um, suggested that this go before our full ethics committee. And the second was that I, um, I notified the medical director because of the sort of novel nature of some of these procedures, um, recognizing that even if the committee felt they were appropriate, the medical director should be involved and know that they were going on within the institution. Now, that being said, and one of the criticisms of sort of what happened was that this was experimental. Um, I'll say that this was no more experimental than any, anything else we do in clinical medicine. As a matter of fact, all three procedures are, are um, there's a fair amount of experience and data on. Hysterectomies are a standard procedure. There's nothing experimental about them. You know what you're doing, and you know what the impact is going to be, and you know what the risks and benefits are. Um, uh, breast bud removal, uh, very similarly. Now, the novel aspect of that is that we were doing it in a young girl, uh, but the procedure itself, there again, there was nothing experimental about the procedure itself. It's done uh, not infrequently on boys who have uh, gynecomastia. Finally, um, as it turns out, growth attenuation, and the way growth attenuation is done is, is that uh, you simply give somebody high doses of estrogen. Estrogen has a limiting effect on 
or, or actually a, 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 um, the effect of increasing the rapidity with which the growth plates close. Um, it initially will actually accelerate growth, but it accelerates the rate at which the growth plates close even more quickly than it accelerates growth. And so what you will see when you give somebody like Ashley uh, high doses of estrogen is that they will have a growth spurt, but then they will not have a growth spurt as long as normal women would, and so she'll stop growing much more uh, quickly. The idea being that then her height is limited because her growth plates have closed. Um, as it turns out, this is also not anything we have no experience with. We have lots of experience with this uh, for perhaps not such great reasons, which um, uh, in and of itself raises interesting questions about the, uh, the uses of science and, and uh, medicine. Um, as it turns out, in the 60s and 70s, it was common practice to give some women high-dose estrogen. Why? Because they came from families with tall parents, and the parents were concerned that their girl was going to be too tall. Uh, now, in the 60s, it could be fairly stigmatizing to be a girl who was 5'11 or 6 feet tall. Uh, that was before Title IX. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, being a, 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 a six-foot-tall uh, woman who could play basketball or volleyball was not necessarily considered um, an advantage the way it is today. Um, and there were lots of other reasons that uh, people wanted daughters to be shorter, largely for their marriage prospects was, was what was on the minds of uh, their parents. And so they would bring these kids into their pediatricians and say, what can we do about this? She's going to be 5'11", if our heights are any indication. And the pediatricians would say, well, we can give her high-dose estrogen, and that's precisely what they did to thousands of girls in the 60s and 70s. Interestingly enough, one of the women on our committee who um, is um, at least 5'11", um, had undergone treatment with high-dose estrogen as, a, as, as an adolescent, had experience with the very treatment we were talking about with Ashley. Um, this treatment was also reported in the literature. There's, there's one report from 1956 on, on, of uh, the experience of over 700 girls. And, and the gist of all of those reports is that the incidence of side effects, at least significant side effects, was fairly low. Um, I, I believe in that 700 cases or so, there was one case of a deep venous thrombosis that was fairly minor. Um, there was some incidence of nausea and other minor side effects. But uh, in terms of serious side effects, it was fairly low. The way we do this today is we put a transdermal patch on somebody. The, the projection in Ashley's case, um, and this was based on her mid-parental heights, was that she would, rather than being, you know, maybe 5'4", and there was some correction there for um, some other factors related to her disability, um, because based on her parents' height, she would have been taller than 5'4". Um, the projection was she would be about 4'6", with treatment with high-dose estrogen. Um, and as a matter of fact, that's about where she ended up. Um, now, what I will say is that the reality is that we probably did not cut 10 inches off her height with high-dose estrogen. Um, if we had not treated her, my guess is she would have been considerably shorter than the, pro the projected 5'4", because um, she had precocious puberty, which has pretty much very similar effects to high-dose estrogen. One of the reasons we treat precocious puberty in children is that it, they will ultimately end up shorter than their sort of genetic potential, precisely for the same reasons they are when you give high-dose estrogen. Um, now, you get a little more if you give high-dose estrogen, and, but the reality is what we probably did was, was took a girl who was going to be around 4'10 or 4'8 and made her 4'6. The, the effect was not as dramatic as 
um, as uh, we initially probably thought. So I mentioned these two additional requests. Um, <clears throat> and a couple of comments now about sort of the way we, we think about these things. One, one of the flaws when people think about um, sort of the, the upside and downside of doing therapies is they frequently don't consider what the alternatives might be. And so in this case, for example, the common method of analysis has been how could you possibly expose somebody to a treatment regimen that involves risks? Hysterectomy requires anesthesia. Um, high-dose estrogen involves giving somebody high doses of estrogen, and, and you, you know, you've, you've admitted that at least some of those kids might develop a deep venous thrombosis. Um, well, what you have to remember is you're not comparing this sort of a, sort of a regimen with um, nothing. Uh, if you don't do high-dose estrogen, if you don't do a hysterectomy, there will be some other path that's followed that also has risks and benefits. And in Ashley's case, what were those? Well, <clears throat> a young girl like Ashley is not going to remain untreated if you don't do high-dose estrogen, if you don't do a hysterectomy. Her parents are going to protect her against unwanted pregnancy. Her parents are going to try to limit her menstrual periods. Um, if she develops menstrual cramps and she had a strong family history for that, her parents will be treating her with medications to try to relieve the discomfort of that if they can tell that that's the problem since Ashley can't communicate that. Um, those are also going to involve risks and benefits. At a minimum, she's going to be on birth control pills for the next 30 to 40 years. Um, now, if you take somebody who's bed-bound and put them on birth control pills for 30 or 40 years, you've got a pretty high incidence and risk of deep venous thrombosis, and uh, probably higher than two years of high-dose estrogen. Um, and so one of the important points here is you just can't sort of map this out and then compare it to nothing. You have to compare it to what the alternative would be if you didn't do this. Um, likewise, if you don't do a hysterectomy, you've now got somebody who will require some other method of managing menstrual periods and managing menstrual cramps, uh, many of which we know from adult women aren't very successful. And, and one of the um, one of the things I've heard from many women after talking about this case and after this case has been public is I hear from those women who have not had control of their menstrual cramps and, uh, and, and have tried everything short of a hysterectomy and in some cases ultimately gotten the hysterectomy precisely because it was the only way to control them. Um, so <clears throat> that's important as sort of a, um, a side comment. And, and as the Ethics Committee considered this, of course, we would... We thought about those sorts of things. You know, what 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 sort of path will be followed if if uh, we don't allow them to do this? Now, the ethical question here, obviously, is: Is this the right thing to do? And uh, so, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, as the ethics committee, which is a committee made up of twelve people who, for some reason, don't get picked to serve on the important committees, um, <clears throat> had to do as they faced this particular issue. We convened the full committee. Um, the parents and Ashley both came to the meeting for the first part of it. Um, uh, the parents, the father actually gave a presentation on their reasons for their requests. The committee was able to see Ashley, um, sort of understand the extent of her disability and, and uh, how, how um, she sort of functioned within this family. Um, and then we deliberated for about two to two and a half hours. Um, and uh, we took a very specific approach. We considered each request as separate and independent. Um, and, and that's, uh, the media has somewhat distorted this case by referring to an Ashley treatment, which, which has actually been 
uh, sort of propagated by the family as well. We, we never perceived any of this as an Ashley treatment. What we saw was three separate requests. There was some interrelationship. Uh, the risks of high-dose estrogen go down if you do a hysterectomy because the biggest risk is excess bleeding. Um, and there were timing uh, relationships uh, in the sense that if you're going to do high-dose estrogen therapy and a hysterectomy, it makes sense to do the hysterectomy before you do the high-dose estrogen therapy. Um, and so there were interrelationships, but we also recognized that it was perfectly compatible um, uh, in, in, in the sense of ethics to say, uh, we're not going to allow you to do one of these procedures, but we'll allow you to do two, or we'll allow you to do the hysterectomy, but not the breast bud removal, that the three did not have to come as a package. Our focus was exclusively on the benefits and risks to the child. There was no consideration of uh, whether the parents would benefit from this procedure or not. We recognized that they were likely to in the sense that caregiving would be easier. Um, but I can tell you from being in that room that the sole focus was on the risks and the benefits to Ashley herself. Will she uh, experience some direct benefit from these three procedures? And all three of them, we recognized raised ethical issues. We wrestled with those ethical issues. And at the end of the day, the committee was in agreement that there was reason to believe that Ashley would actually uh, benefit from these procedures and would be unlikely to experience harm. And, and that wording is chosen carefully and intentionally uh, in the sense of experiencing harm. I recognize that there are many people in many groups in particular when they have uh, looked at the Ashley case who have felt that she was harmed and who themselves feel that they were harmed. Um, but the question in our minds was, would, Ash, would, would any of these sort of perceived harms from other people be something that Ashley would experience as a harm given the level of her cognitive status and what her life will look like in the future and what she will consider to be of value and, 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 um, and uh, a good life? And it was, it was felt that the risk would be pretty low from that perspective. So ultimately, we recommended allowing the parents to proceed with this procedure, these three procedures. We did recommend that they obtain a legal um, opinion regarding the necessity for a court order for the hysterectomy. Washington State has case law regarding hysterectomy in, in uh, people who cannot consent for themselves. It's somewhat murky in the sense that the case law does not directly um, it doesn't directly correspond to um, someone in Ashley's condition. And so we recommended that that would be the safe route to follow. Uh, and then finally, we also, re we also were very clear about the fact that this was not precedent setting, that, that, that our decision in this case was based entirely on the facts of the case, that this particular little girl, given her condition and her um, sort of family history and set of facts, that we felt these three things were appropriate, uh, but that that would not necessarily be the case for any other child coming down the pike. Uh, and as a result, we felt that all these cases, rather than sort of giving a sort of green light to the endocrinologist to do this for anybody he felt was appropriate, we felt it would always in the future need to be reviewed by some kind of an independent group like the Ethics Committee. What was the outcome? Ashley was treated with the surgical procedure. She had her uterus removed. Her ovaries were preserved so that she would maintain normal hormonal production throughout her life. Her breast buds were removed, and she received treatment for about two years. Um, and uh, although the slide says her height was shortened by a foot to 18 inches, as I said, if you take into consideration her precocious puberty and you move on the assumption that that would not have been treated, 
Um, the reality is that the high-dose estrogen therapy is probably only responsible for a small part of that because the precocious puberty would have done a lot of it by itself. Um, this case was then published by Dan Gunther, who was the endocrinologist, and I. We published it, um, uh, I think, for different reasons. Dan was interested uh, from the perspective of a scientist and an endocrinologist who felt this was a treatment that had not been utilized for this population that might be of benefit to other kids. My interest in publishing it was um, uh, that I found the ethical issues intriguing and felt that there should be a broader discussion of the ethical issues surrounding growth attenuation therapy. And so our, po our paper actually focused on the growth attenuation aspects of this. Now, as Dehock from Visa says, everything has both intended and unintended consequences. The intended consequences may or may not happen. The unintended consequences always do. And that's uh, precisely what happened in this case. Um, we began treatment in 2004. Our article was published in 2006. Um, and there was a small flurry of media attention when the article came out. We made no effort to publicize it. I let our PR department know that we were publishing it and that it would be potentially controversial, but asked them specifically not to publicize it, um, that uh, you know the purpose was to get some academic discussion going, and I didn't want to sort of have a media circus surrounding this. Um, and then the uh, the story apparently seemed to seemed to die off after a small flurry of media attention. But but in the background there was an L.A. Times reporter who had talked to me in October, um, and who, who had never written his story. And I thought it was because he felt the story had been covered. There was nothing new to add. And as a matter of fact, that's precisely what happened. Except he kept looking for something new to add, and he knew the new thing was to get the family, because the family largely on our advice, had refused to do any media interviews. They wanted to maintain their privacy. They had other young children in school. They just didn't want uh, to be outed, so to speak, and, and have their family and their young children to have to go through that. Um, well, what changed was um, they w the family became a little unhappy with the initial media coverage, um, largely because the initial media coverage was had largely framed this whole issue as being for the convenience of the family, that this was all about the parents, that there was no benefit here for Ashley. And there had been very little sort of uh, countering to that. And, and so the family decided they needed to tell their story, and they did so in the form of a blog on the web. Um, and then they emailed the LA Times reporter who had been badgering them for an interview and said, we still won't do an interview, but if you want our story, here it is. Here's the website. Nobody else knows about it. It's yours, and you can use the pictures, and you can use what's there, which is precisely what he did. And um, at that point in time, there was an explosion of media attention. Um, I did almost nothing but media interviews for 10 days um, worldwide, Australia, Britain. I mean, it was actually more of a circus in Europe even than in this country, um, culminating with you know articles in Time and People and an appearance on Larry King and so on and so on. And uh, not surprisingly, um, at that point in time, we also saw some protests developing with disability, organized disability rights groups um, um, having some issues with what was done and uh, um, protesting outside of the, the AMA headquarters. An interesting choice because the, the only reason for protesting outside the AMA headquarters is that they're the publisher of the journal that we published this article in. Uh, so it's not entirely clear what they were protesting against by po by protesting in front of the AMA, you know, whether it was academic freedom and being against it or, or what. Um, um, they, 
but um, but that's what they chose to do. Um, and uh, of course, everybody had an opinion. Um, most of those opinions were badly misinformed. Most of them grossly distorted the facts. And um, it's part of the reason that um, I continue to talk about the case because rule number one in ethics is good ethics requires good, good facts. And um, if you don't know what you're talking about, the odds are you're not going to come to the right conclusions and you're not going to do a thoughtful analysis. Um, <clears throat> there are many people who actually think I'm the one with the horns <laughs> and the spear there. All right, so let's talk about the ethical aspects. Um, the first thing I'd say about a case like this is, is that, you know, one of, certainly a Christian duty, and I would argue a broader duty, is to seek the truth. Um, and again, I mean, if you're really interested in doing an ethical analysis, you've got to make sure you got the facts straight, and you should be honest about what they are, and you shouldn't try to distort them. Um, and there were lots of attempts in this case, some of them intentional, to distort the facts in order to arrive at the conclusions that people had already come to. Um, and there were some very prominent bioethicists who made comments on this case that grossly distorted um, the facts. Uh, two sort of prominent uh, examples of that is, is that Ashley was frequently described as having been frozen in time, um, as if what we had done, we had frozen her in childhood. Um, which couldn't be further from the truth. What we did was we made her shorter than she would be as an adult, um, and we did a hysterectomy on her, which is a procedure that lots of adult women actually undergo, and we don't make the claim that they're somehow juvenilized or frozen in childhood. Um, and we made her so that her breasts will be smaller than they would have been otherwise, and we also don't tell small-breasted women that they're somehow juvenilized or um, uh, frozen in childhood. Uh, the reality is that, then um, there's no question in my mind about this, if, if uh, any of you see Ashley in a lineup 20 years from now, uh, you won't be able to tell her apart from any other person with the same disabilities, I mean, unless you've seen her picture. Um, she's going to be in a wheelchair. She's going to be short, but not freakishly short. Um, and uh, there's just no way to tell that she was, uh, you know, frozen in childhood because she wasn't. She will age normally. Um, and continue to age normally. Um, she was also compared to Peter Pan. So this was called the Peter Pan treatment. And my 10-year-old daughter at the time, um, when she heard me telling my wife that this prominent bioethicist had just described Ashley as Peter Pan, my 10-year-old daughter said, but Daddy, uh, Peter Pan doesn't get older, and Ashley keeps getting older. So I said, well, <clears throat> I guess you're smarter than some of the people out there are. Um, so at any rate, the important thing is, you know, you really, it, it's important that we actually maintain some effort to uh, seek the truth and, and um, be honest about what we're talking about. Um, the second is you need to identify the question. And there are actually several questions here. Uh, the, the, the one that the committee was primarily interested in was whether this was in Ashley's best interest as compared to available alternatives. Um, and with regard to all three of those. Uh, but there were also so, so, some other questions that, that you can't avoid, one of which is who ultimately should be able to make that decision. Um, is it the ethics committee that makes that decision? Is it the physician? Is it disability rights groups? Or is it the parents or some other group? Um, the ethics committee didn't feel it was their decision to decide whether Ashley should be treated or not. We really saw our decision as whether this was the sort of decision that a parent should be allowed to make for a child or whether it, it crossed a line. 
Um, and so when we said uh, we think it would be appropriate to allow the parents to proceed, uh, what we were really saying was we don't see anything here that, would pr that should preclude them from being the ones that make this decision for their daughter. In other words, this does not cross a line where they're placing their child at substantial risk of serious harm, which is the standard we usually use. Um, and, and that would be sort of the answer to the third question was, are there limits to the kind of decision that should be tolerated? And the short answer to that is yes, we limit parental decision making all the time. There are frequently cases that I'm asked to consult on, um, but we do it all the time. Uh, it's, a, it's a rare situation in which we'll let a parent refuse a life-saving blood transfusion for a child if that child has a good prognosis otherwise, for example. Um, we didn't feel this one crossed that line. So in our analysis about whether this was in Ashley's best interest, um, I find uh, the, the words of the prophet Micah to be very helpful in sort of, you know, what, how do you make decisions like this? And, and um, uh, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Um, what you see there in my mind are the three basic precepts of ethical analysis. And, and the first of those is justice. The second of those is what we call benevolence or beneficence um, to love mercy. And then finally, you do that with humility, recognizing that you may not um, have the right answer here. Beneficence is clearly the principle we were trying to apply in that room as we talked about this case. Um, it's the principle that says we should be doing good to others. Uh, we have an obligation to seek the good of others by avoid, avoiding the, inf the unnecessarily infliction of harm. Um, the reality is we harm people all the time in medicine, but we justify those harms on the basis of greater goods. Every time you undergo surgery, there is significant harm there. Somebody's cutting into your body. They're creating a wound. There's pain and morbidity after that. You don't do that unless you've got a reason that actually justifies that harm. Um, so we avoid the infliction of unnecessary harms. We try to prevent harms, and we try to promote the good of others. In medicine, as are many of the sciences, is a form of applied beneficence. Um, everybody in the healthcare professions is generally doing what they're doing because they want to do what's best for their patients. Um, and there was a sincere effort to do that in this particular case on the part of the general pediatrician and the endocrinologist and the surgeon and the ethics committee and everybody involved with that case. And it's clear that some people would disagree that we uh, we actually did that the right way, but the bottom line is that that was what was being attempted, that people were trying to make a sincere effort to do what was good for Ashley. Likewise, parenting is a form of applied beneficence, and Ashley's parents had genuinely uh, benevolent motivations in doing what they did. They truly believed that this would benefit their daughter, and I can tell you that they continue to believe that. There's no question in their minds uh, now, four years later, that this was the right thing for Ashley, um, and, uh, and they've had no reason to sort of regret uh, any, anything that happened. As we apply the principle of beneficence, however, it's important to recognize that uh, we will not always get agreement on how to apply beneficence, that, that, that people will disagree from time to time about uh, what beneficence means in a particular situation. And there are lots of reasons for that. When we talk about what's in somebody's best interest, uh, it sometimes depends what we're talking about. Are we, and, and physicians are sometimes guilty, for example, of focusing only on medical benefit. 
as opposed to sort of total well-being. And, and, and it's part of the reason that sometimes adult patients make decisions that differ from the recommendations of their physicians because the adult patient is saying, well, there are other issues in my life here that play into the decision I'm making. And I recognize that medically you think I should undergo another course of chemotherapy or whatever, um, but that's just not right for me given my life, where I am in my life, and my other values, and what I want to continue to do. Um, there are also trade-offs in competing medical goods, and, and sometimes physicians weigh these differently than parents and, and uh, adult patients. Uh, for example, um, I mean, I use the example of surgery. Uh, there is morbidity and, and suffering related to undergoing a surgical procedure, and so people have to weigh whether the burdens of that justify the potential benefit to be gained. And that equation will frequently differ from one person to the other. Uh, the same goes for uh, pharmaceutical treatments and lots of other uh, aspects of, of medical care. And then finally, just balancing the burdens and benefits of treatment can be tricky. <clears throat> and um, what I think many people find is that um, good physicians actually help patients sort of understand that weighing um, and, and the factors involved, but then actually give them some freedom to make the choice if they have a preference. Uh, and if they don't have a preference, they'll make a recommendation. So things can look quite differently depending on where you sit, and uh, that's, that's probably the most important aspect about applying beneficence, and I think our committee recognized that. Um, one of the common questions I get related to our committee is, uh, well, did you vote? Was there agreement? And we did not vote. We operate on a consensus basis. Um, and it would be ridiculous for me to make the claim that nobody had discomfort in that room. I think everybody had discomfort in that room. We usually do when we face a hard decision. Um, I can also tell you that this was not the most difficult or the most disturbing ethical case I've been involved with. As a matter of fact, we had one about a year ago um, that, um, I, that haunts me much more than this one ever did. I mean, I, I continue to feel as if Ashley was, was treated uh, in, in an appropriate manner in this case, and, and I've been given no reason to think otherwise. But there's a decision our committee made about a year ago that I'm very uncomfortable about. Um, not because I think we made the wrong decision, but because I just think the stakes were so high and, um, um, and, and uh, it wasn't clear to me what the right choice should be. Um, and, and so uh, different people will feel differently, and individuals on that committee were torn. Most individuals were. I don't know anybody who sort of walked into that room and said, oh, this is easy, why are we here? Um, everybody struggled with it. But ultimately, this case was about making one little girl's life and one family's experience a little better. Uh, there was no effort to set a precedent to create a policy. Um, now, I recognize in publishing the case, we, we basically put that out there. I mean, you don't publish a case like this without it having potential to be generalized and used by other people and, 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 and sort of becoming a precedent. Um, our purpose, actually, or at least my purpose, actually, was to get more discussion and debate about the issue, uh, which it certainly has achieved. Um, <clears throat> but um, uh, there clearly are some potential policy implications uh, once you do something like that um, that raise these sorts of issues uh, at, at a wider level who should be able to make this decision. Should other parents be able to make this decision for their children and under what circumstances? And that's actually where maybe some of the really hard questions uh, begin. Um, 
when we talk about decision-making standards for parents, now parents are people who make decisions for somebody else. They're not making them for, their set for themselves. So we, we don't give them as much discretion as we would give somebody making a decision, like most of you in this room, about your own health care. But we do give them a fair amount of latitude. And as a general rule, um, what, we, what we say is that um, parents as, can make decisions for their children as long as those decisions can be conceived to be in the best interest of the child. Um, and furthermore, um, that's limited by the fact that we will not allow parents to do something that we feel places their child at substantial risk of serious harm without some corresponding benefit. Um, and uh, that's the way the law approaches sort of parenthood in general, and that's the way we approach it in the medical realm. My feeling is in cases where reasonable people disagree about what's in a child's best interest, then parents should be able to decide those, and I think this was a case of that. Um, not everybody in that room was convinced that this was in Ashley's best interest, but I think everybody in that room was convinced that there was potential for her to benefit here, that there was a low likelihood of any risk that would be experienced by her, uh, and as a result, um, the parents should be able to make this decision ultimately. Now, if we talk about moving forward, you know, I've been asked, and, and in our paper we address this somewhat, are there criteria I would use? In other words, uh, what, one of the things that surprised me even fairly recently is there are actually people out there that think I would place no limits on this treatment, um, which is, clearly indicates several things, including the fact that they haven't read the original paper. Um, it's actually surprising how few people have actually read the academic paper that resulted in this whole hullabaloo. Um, the truth is in the media in most people's minds, and, and they feel no need to actually go to the original paper <laughs> for the details of the case or our actual analysis. Um, but in our paper, we actually uh, make the argument that, that any attempt to move forward and, and perform these sorts of things on other kids should be done very carefully. And in particular, we were talking about growth attenuation. Um, and, you know, if you asked me for criterion, I'd say that it should not be done on anybody who's not profoundly developmentally delayed, um, who is non-ambulatory. Now, why non-ambulatory, I've been asked. Uh, and I've been asked that by parents of badly autistic kids, for example, you know, who, who really feel like this could benefit them if their kid was just a little smaller and a little easier to control. And my argument is that the benefit of height um, largely accrues um, for people who are capable of being up and around and socially interacting. I mean, there's no question that there are sociological advantages to being taller in our society. And in most societies, it crosses cultures. Um, when you're non-ambulatory, a lot of that tends to go away. Um, first of all, you're not up and moving around and interacting with others as frequently. And secondly, you're, if you're like Ashley, you're in a wheelchair. And it's a little difficult to tell exactly how tall you are. Um, and so the non-ambulatory aspect relates to that sort of value of height for somebody who might be socially interacting in important ways. Uh, the prognosis should be near certain about the capacity to, to be anything other than profoundly developmentally delayed. There should be agreement on multiple evaluations by different providers. Obviously, you need a willing provider. Um, there sh and, and we felt there should be some outside review by an ethics committee uh, or some other form. And we also thought there should be a review of outcomes, and that's where the scientific aspect comes in. We felt fairly strongly that if this were to move forward beyond a case, there should at a minimum be some kind of a registry so that adverse events could be 
uh, tracked and, and you could have some kind of database moving forward to, to really make sure you're doing the right thing. And perhaps that's where the, the sort of aspect of humility comes in. Um, it's not, it, I'm far from convinced that moving forward and generalizing this to, you know, hundreds of children would necessarily be a good thing. And it would be, in my mind, a very important thing to make sure that we knew what we were doing. And that means collecting data. Now, so those are my principles, and if you don't like them, I have others. Um, <laughs> and I can tell you, other people have others. Um, when I show these criteria, I get criticized on both sides. I get criticized that they're not stringent enough, and I get criticized that they're too stringent. Um, and actually, I get criticized more often that they're too stringent, um, which is okay with me. Um, so now, let me just cover five of the common objections. I just finished writing a manuscript, um, which hopefully will end up being published, um, where I have, um, it's called um, Ashley Revisited, Responding to the Critics. Um, I was able to catalog 30 discrete objections to the Ashley case that people put forward over the last two years. Um, and I'm going to share five of them with you because it would take two hours to go over the other 25. Um, but th these are five that are probably some of the more common ones. And I think you'll recognize that these are also criticisms of a lot of scientific disciplines as they move forward. And, um, uh, you know, whether we're talking about the use of stem cells or um, any other scientific advances. So we frequently were accused of... Um, doing something that just wasn't natural. This isn't natural, you shouldn't be doing it. And um, this is just a, I mean, from a, from a sort of logical perspective, it's, it's just a, unless you're willing to reject almost all of medicine, it's, it's just a silly argument, because uh, there's nothing in medicine we do that's natural. I mean, surgery isn't natural, and liver transplants certainly aren't natural. And when I immunize your children, um, it's not natural. Um, and when I give your children antibiotics, I'm actually killing nature because those germs that are invading your child's body are actually natural. Um, and so there's a lot of what we do that's not natural. And, and, and so it seems to me that you just can't sort of make the argument that since growth attenuation is not natural, it's not okay. Um, because we consider lots of unnatural things to be okay. If you look at this population of kids, um, Ashley has a G-tube. Um, that's not natural either. Uh, and, um, and yet uh, nobody who's objected to sort of growth attenuation is objected to the fact that she has this unnatural tube sticking into her abdomen uh, that she's fed by. Um, many, of, many children similar to Ashley have tracheostomy tubes through which they breathe. Um, some of them undergo tendon releases. Some of them undergo osteotomies, all very unnatural procedures, um, and uh, none which uh, seem to generate the same sort of objections. You're playing God. Um, this is another argument that I, I think falls on its face. Um, I th first of all, as creatures, we're supposed to be imaging God. And if imaging God means the same thing as playing God, then I'm not sure why we have an objection to it, because we're told that we are imagers of God. Um, so what do people mean when they say we're playing God here? Um, if what they mean is that we've done something sort of that looks godlike, uh, well, then we do that every time we practice medicine, too. Um, I mean, th there's something godlike in the same way when I intervene in the course of an infection and treat it with antibiotics or put a child in the hospital to save their life. I mean, who am I to say that God isn't calling them home? 
the fact of the matter is that we do the best we can. We try to use the tools God has given us to do good for other people. And um, in my mind, the only legitimacy to this particular argument is if by playing God you mean that, that there's so much hubris behind what you've just done um, that you, you now think you are God. And I, I certainly would agree that there's a problem there. I don't think that's happened in this case. Um, I, I think um, you know the proper lens through theological lens through which to, to see this case is one of stewardship and, and you can argue whether this was an appropriate application of stewardship, but this was an attempt to use the tools that God has given us to benefit one particular person in a very individual way um, and again, there was humility behind that decision as, as I mentioned, nobody was convinced this was the right thing, but it was the best but the best bet we could make that that you know, all things considered, it really looked like this little girl would benefit, and therefore it was felt to be okay. But we also recognized that there were huge chasms of uncertainty and uh, enormous potential for misuse and so on. Um, and that brings us to the slippery slope argument, which is, again, I think one we very commonly see applied across the scientific disciplines. There's a slippery slope here. You shouldn't go on the slippery slope. It's dangerous. Uh, and this can look several different ways. Uh, one is if even if this was justified for Ashley, people will say, even if you can say that it was beneficial to this little girl, there's huge potential for misuse here in, in other cases. Um, uh, and there is some truth to that. But um, there's more than one response to the slippery slope. And as somebody who does mountaineering occasionally, using a slippery slope argument is not a very effective argument to use because um, <laughs> we live on the slippery slope. Um, uh, some of you went to uh, Mount St. Helens yesterday. Well, when I go to Mount St. Helens, I, I go up the crater and climb the, you know, the, the snow field and go up and look over the edge. That's the slippery slope. Um, why do I do that? I mean, the reason I do that is there's a corresponding good there. I recognize that the slippery slope is risky. I mean, I see evidence of that several times a year as people fall off glaciers and into crevasses and get killed. We know the slippery slope is dangerous, um, and yet we go on it because we, we know that, you know, I mean, I showed you that view from Mount Olympus. I mean, there's a reason we go on the slippery slope. You can't see Mount Olympus the way it needs to be seen unless you climb that mountain. And, uh, you know, you get a beautiful view from a lot of other places, and that's terrific, but some of us really want the other view, too. There's a benefit there. You will not get that benefit if you don't go on the slippery slope. That's the bottom line. So what does the slippery slope tell us? Well, I think avoiding it is not necessarily the right answer because it restricts your options. I mean, to, to say that you should avoid it is to say that the status quo is always the right thing to do and is always the best option, and it's not, quite simply. Sometimes going on the slippery slope yields very important uh, advances. So what is the proper approach? Well, you use protection and care. I don't climb Mount Olympus by myself without protection. I go with a team of people that I trust and know, know what they're doing. I do homework beforehand to make sure I know the route and what the dangers are. I know what time of year it is and what the snowpack's been like so that I can go the route that I know is the safest. I use an ice axe. We put crampons on our feet, and we're roped together as a team. It's still not 100% safe, but it optimizes our ability to be on the slippery slope safely. So how do you apply that to an Ashley case? Well... I suggested one way. You have criterion as you move forward. You make sure that you're doing it on a very select group and that those criterion are fairly rigid until you've got data 
that suggests you could move beyond these safely. Um, that's uh, the proper use of the slippery slope um, in my mind. <clears throat> um, my uh, colleague, Norm Faust, <laughs> um, loves to point out the fact that um, uh, if, if we took this argument seriously, we never would have invented the wheel. Um, <laughs> because look at the horrible things that have been the result of the wheel. I mean, uh, you know, it, it, back at the time where we were inventing the wheel, if somebody had said, you can't go there because if you invent the wheel, somebody is going to put four wheels together, and if they put four wheels together, somebody else might put an engine on it, and then it's going to roll down the road. And if somebody does that, then maybe someday somebody will put a cannon on it and fire it into people, and so on and so on and so on. I mean, there was a slippery slope with the invention of the wheel, um, as there is with everything um, uh, that we do technologically. And, and the value of the argument is to warn us, but not necessarily to prohibit. Um, objection four, this benefits the parents, but not the child. And I would just simply argue that it benefited both. I'm, the parents did benefit from this, I'm sure. Their caretaking is easier as a result of the treatments. Um, but parental interests are often intertwined with the interests of children. Um, it's not always clear. Uh, first of all, that it's wrong that parents benefit as long as the child doesn't harm. And secondly, um, that in benefiting the, the parents, it also benefits the child. Um, and then and finally, in this case, we also felt there were independent interests um, that Ashley uh, uh, attained. And then finally, this violates her dignity. Um, another argument we hear frequently in scientific or discourse about scientific advancements, um, this notion of dignity. Um, and I'm going to say something um, that, that uh, for some of you may sound a little sacrilegious, but I'm not entirely convinced the concept of dignity is meaningful. Um, it seems to me that people use dignity as a bludgeon uh, to say, um, I'm offended by what you did, I don't like what you did, uh, but it carries no meaning without some definition, and nobody ever defines what they actually mean when they use the term dignity. I'm not the first one who's made this argument. Ruth Macklin has made this argument and is having a war on dignity um, <laughs> because she thinks it's a way for people to avoid actually talking about what the real issues are. You know, if you don't like what we did, tell us what it is that you don't like, but don't tell me that it's because it violated her dignity um, because we don't know what that means. And, and uh, uh, if you want to use the term dignity, it's not clear to me how Ashley's dignity was violated in this case. I, I, she was treated as an individual. She had individual needs. We tried to optimize her quality of life. Um, she will never experience any of these things as dignity. As I mentioned, if, if dignity is related to sort of the social, um, the way people view you socially, um, you won't be able to pick her out of a lineup. She doesn't look like a freak. She'll never look like a freak. She looks like somebody who's in a wheelchair, just like anybody else with her condition. Um, and uh, it's not clear to me how that um, in any way has treated her in an undignified manner. So Ashley today is about 10 years old. She's four foot five, 63 pounds, has come to the end of her growth. So that's probably about where she'll stay. This, this is actually Ashley right here with her family uh, this past Christmas. Um, and uh, according to her parents, is doing very well. The frame with which I understand this case is that it's a tragic case. Um, tragic, not so much in the sad sense, but tragic in the sense that there are no good choices um, or, the, or no clearly good choices. Um, and, and as it turns out, most of the cases that I get involved in that are disturbing are disturbing precisely for that reason, that there's not a clear good choice. You're faced with two lousy options. 
You're faced with a couple good options, and you can only pick one of them, and that constitutes tragedy. And in Ashley's case, we were faced with that situation. We recognized that, you know, this wasn't the ideal way to manage this little girl, but there wasn't an ideal way to manage this little girl. And, you know, quite frankly, this way looked to be have some potential uh, that in her particular circumstances might give her a better life than without those interventions. So there was moral ambiguity here. How do you manage those situations? <clears throat> well, you manage them with humility and courage, um, which in some ways go against each other. You need the courage to move forward. You don't have a choice in tragic situations about not making a choice. You have to make a choice. Um, a, a lot of people said, well, wouldn't it have been better just to do nothing? Well, you never do nothing in a case like this. As I pointed out earlier, if you don't treat Ashley with the sort of things that her parents requested, then you treat her in some other way. And that's the choice you're making when you choose not to allow the parents to proceed. And so this fantasy that you wouldn't be making a choice is just that. It's a fantasy. You're always making a choice. Even a choice not to move forward is a choice. Um, and, and in this particular case, we didn't feel that that choice was a very good one either. Um, so you proceed, you have to have the courage to proceed and, and move in the direction you think is the right one, but at the same time you do that with humility, recognizing that this will need to be reevaluated, uh, will need to proceed carefully. If there's at any point we encounter a situation where it looks like we've made the wrong decision, you revisit that and go back. As Stanley Hauer-Voss, who I started the hour with, says, the demands of living morally are hard. We do not wish to face the truth that we live in a world where honesty and faithfulness do not always lead to good results and consequences, but sometimes to tragic choices. And that's sort of the world we live in, and that's the life we, um, we lead. And uh, that's what you do when you do bioethics and ethics, is you face those tragic choices. And uh, sometimes you have to just kind of muddle through them and try to do the right thing, and you do that by uh, doing the best analysis you can do and, uh, and uh, do so carefully and then reevaluate those sort of decisions as you move forward. So I'm going to stop there, which I think gives us a couple minutes for questions. Let's thank our speaker. We do have time for a couple of questions. Uh, we have a portable mic here, which I will hand around, and uh, for our recording purposes, if you can make the uh, make your uh, question in 30 seconds or less and into the mic, we'd appreciate it. Thank you. I thought this was a fascinating presentation. So I, I have a question that often comes from a secular environment that would say the best thing is that all of these ethical considerations be as far removed from any faith perspective or religious perspective as possible. Now, you've given to a sympathetic audience how you understand this from the viewpoint of faith, but how would you respond to a person that would say that kind of thing? Well, it depends on the point I want to make, um, but <laughs> how I would respond to them. But what I'll tell you is, uh, first of all, you can't remove, I mean, you can't remove faith perspectives. Um, everybody carries their biases. Those will come through uh, as people think about cases. And, uh, you know, no matter how objective somebody thinks they can be in an ethical analysis, their underlying values will come through um, if they truly hold them uh, seriously. Um, so that being said, um, it's important, I think, to be aware of those biases, and it's important 
and those beliefs and to be aware of the fact that the people you're dealing with may not share them. Um, so um, I do um, have to be sensitive to that when I'm working with families that, that they may not share my faith belief. Now, you know, as I sort of pointed out, the interesting thing is, you know, you look at that, the words of the prophet Micah, and it's easily convertible into secular principles that almost everybody agrees on. Um, what's always been fascinating to me is that, that um, you know, sort of the theological basis for ethics and the principles of justice and love um, is precisely the same principles that secular ethics has ultimately settled on. It's beneficence and justice instead of love and justice. Or, and, and um, you know, they sometimes throw in autonomy. But, but in, in a separate talk, I've made the argument that autonomy is really not much different than an application of beneficence. Um, it's respecting other people. And, uh, you know, you could argue that that's a Christian virtue, too. So, so you know, it makes my job easier in some sense to recognize that, that actually the secular basis for ethics is not radically different than the Christian one. And, and I change my language to talk to people so that I can communicate those concepts in a secular way. Um, but the underlying values don't have to change. Is that on? Why don't you go ahead with that, and then we'll get our next one over here. It is on. Thank you very much, Doug. I mean, as I've heard you before, just a superb uh, exposition of both your position and I think a very, very complicated area. Uh, I just want to draw the parallel when you mentioned the G-tube with the uh, debacle of the Terry Schiavo case <laughs> in the aspects uh, yeah. that were brought out there. I think you, you, you brought it to a different level in two ways. It's a different level of bioethical discussion, but I think you personally also brought it to, to a, a different level that the, both the media and uh, others should, should appreciate. Specifically, though, a bit of a follow-up to Robert's question. Um, as a Christian and someone bioethically inclined, I also uh, struggle with this question of we as physicians um, dealing with the public in public ethical decision-making as opposed to dealing within the Christian community bioethical decision-making. And, and the question, follow-up question I have is, um, you, you talked about what you told, suggested the parents should not do. Mm-hmm. You did not suggest what the parents should do. Um, where should that occur, that decision? Should that be simply with, between the parents? Should it be within a larger faith community? <coughs> And I don't just mean faith in terms of Christian faith, but faith in whatever faith they have. Um, and should that be part of your job in terms of uh, moving that forward for them um, as opposed to saying, well, we've done our job and then leave and then they mm-hmm. make that yeah. positive decision, as it were? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and you know, I think a lot of it depends on the parents. I mean, this was a case where the parents had brought this request to us. I mean, they had made up their mind. So this wasn't a case of the committee saying, Okay, we're gonna, you know, sort of throw it back in your lap and let you struggle with this. It, it, the committee was sort of saying, the committee was consulted in this case, and I was consulted in this case to say, to really answer the question, is it okay to let the parents make this decision or not? So that's the question we addressed. There are other situations in which you're being asked for a recommendation, um, and so you go further than that. Um, so, uh, and, and and you know, how does my faith? sort of factor in there. Well, if I'm dealing with a family that clearly shares some religious values, I will use the language of, of, of their religion. So in, in one case, um, you know, that was very memorable. And one of the cases that still haunts me to this day was a little girl 
whose parents were evangelical Christians like myself and shared that. And so we were able to have a conversation about what God would expect in a situation like this where, where her daughter was clearly trying to die and the, and the medical team was sort of doing a full court press and, and the family had sort of come to the decision that it was time to let her go. Uh, but the medical team wasn't quite there yet. Um, it's, one of the, it, it, it's one of the times where I've actually um, gone back to the medical team and said, I think, I think the family's right here. You know, I, I think, you know, you need to sort of respect their wishes and, and stop doing what you're doing. And um, they had, they, in that case, they had brought in their faith community. They, their pastor had been at the bedside. Their, nearly everybody in the church, I think, had visited. I mean, it was, it was an unbelievable sort of expression of how the community of faith came behind somebody. You see that played out in a, in a different way with Jehovah's Witness families. Right where the community comes in and they sit with the family, it's largely to make sure nobody gives that person a blood transfusion. Um, and uh, in, in that case, you know, there you have a faith tradition that conflicts somewhat with my own, at least the, it, with regard to the belief system surrounding the administration of blood products. And um, in that case, you know, the, the the secular principle comes in, which is that. You know, look at this particular hospital. We take care of children, and one of the rules is you can't place your child at substantial risk of serious harm. And because we're not an overtly religious institution, we can't factor in the fact that you believe spiritual harm will sort of occur here by giving blood. We we respect the fact that you believe that, and 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 we feel badly about this, but we can't let this child die um, simply because of that. And, and, and so, you know, we don't avoid the religious aspects. We, we hit them head on and, um, you, you, you know, you sort of have to move back and forth. It's, it's, it can be a tricky dance. My co-chair uh, will look at me cross-eyed if I don't uh, close this session off on time uh, after what he said to our uh, moderators just a few minutes ago. Our time is up, but I'm sure that Doug will be happy to talk with you.